Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Dr. Ross Green, welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at Home. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs each Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help your challenging child and implement the collaborative problem solving approach at home. If you have a question or comment, call 347-994-2981. That's 347-994-2981. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about your challenging child and what we can do to make things better. Hi there. Welcome to the program. As always, these are your 45 minutes, so if you're working with a child at home who's not responding very well to Plan B or having trouble with any aspect of doing Plan B or running into trouble getting your co-parent to the or the hockey coaches to buy in or running into trouble getting the folks at school to use collaborative problem solving. This is your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need. Or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem solving approach. Once again, if you want to call in, that number is 347-994-2981. 347-994-2981. Once again, if you're a little hesitant to call in, you can always send me a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website. That's www.livesinthebalance.org. I am getting lots of emails from people with questions about their challenging kids and um, what to do with them and how to help them. Uh, A lot of the questions I've got this week were related to a slightly controversial topic, the topic of diagnosis. And of course, I've brushed on that topic a little bit in prior programs, but I thought I would spend a little bit more time on it today. Um, One of the questions I received this week, um, does a kid who's diagnosed with bipolar disorder have lagging skills? Do all kids with lagging skills have bipolar disorder? How does that work? Well, let me start by reminding all of you that I'm not a very diagnostically oriented mental health professional. There's a variety of reasons not to love diagnoses. Let me start with the reasons that diagnoses can be helpful. There's not that many of them. Diagnoses, regrettably, are often the way in which people finally come to feel that they have been legitimized in believing that there is a problem with their kid. There's something wrong. It's a shame, I think, that it sometimes takes a diagnosis to do that. A a diagnosis kind of sometimes serves as that rubber stamp on the kid's forehead saying, yes, you can take my problem seriously now. But if that's the only way to get people to take a kid's problem seriously, then okay. But isn't it a shame 
that a kid needs a diagnosis in some places for people to take his problems seriously? What a pity. But other upsides to diagnoses, number one, they help parents know, okay, yes, you were right. There is something going on with this kid that needs attention and that people need to take seriously. Um, diagnoses can help parents know that there is support out there for them. If you have a child who's diagnosed with Asperger's disorder, you might find comfort in being with other parents who have a child who's similarly diagnosed, uh, other parents who may have um, been down the road that you haven't, that you're just maybe beginning to go down and may be able to offer you some guidance about their experiences and what helped and what didn't. Those are positive sides to a diagnosis. Then there's the downside to diagnosis. Diagnoses pathologize the kid. We've got to be careful in how we conceptualize the difficulties that a kid is having. And those of you who've listened to the program before know that I find it's much more productive to characterize why a kid is vulnerable to challenging behavior in terms of the skills the kid might be lacking rather than in terms of the diagnosis he's got. Diagnoses make it sound like the kid's got something, like he's, like the problem resides within the kid. And um, it always takes two to tango. Yes, the kid brings an important piece to the picture. He's lacking the skills to deal adaptively with the demands that are being placed upon him. But what I've always noticed, and I've said this in other programs too, behaviorally challenging kids aren't behaviorally challenging every second of every week and hour. They're challenging sometimes, under some conditions, in some situations. When are challenging kids challenging? When the demands being placed upon them exceed their capacity to respond adaptively. It's both the demands and whether the kid has the skills to deal adaptively with those demands that determines whether you're going to see challenging behavior. So let's just take a particular psychiatric diagnosis, oppositional defiant disorder. Oppositional defiant disorder makes it sound like the kid has something, like the problem resides within the kid, and yet Kids with oppositional defiant disorder don't look like they have oppositional defiant disorder every second of every waking hour. They look like they have oppositional defiant disorder sometimes under some conditions. When do they look like they have oppositional defiant disorder? When the demands being placed upon them exceed their capacity to respond adaptively. What does the fact that they're being called oppositional defiant tell us about the kid? Mostly, it tells us where he is on the spectrum of looking bad. Kids with oppositional defiant disorder are the ones who when the demands being placed upon them exceed their capacity to respond adaptively, they pitch a fit. Some people have told me that I'm an expert in oppositionally defined disorder, which I guess basically tells you that I'm an expert in kids who pitch fits. But once again, kids who pitch fits don't pitch fits every second of every waking hour. They pitch fits sometimes, and now you know when. What does oppositional defiant disorder tell us? Not much. We'd be far better served trying to figure out what skills the kid is lacking and under what conditions the demands being placed upon the kid exceed his capacity to respond adaptively. Those are called, as you know, unsolved problems. 
that the information that's really informative is not what his diagnosis is, but rather what skills is he lacking. Now we've got the right lenses on. Under what conditions is, are those skills being called upon and therefore causing challenging behavior? Those are called unsolved problems. Now we've been pointed directly toward a productive intervention. The goal of intervention now, solve those problems, preferably proactively and preferably collaboratively. I don't know where oppositional defiant disorder leads us to. I don't know where conduct disorder leads to. Most kids diagnosed with conduct disorder had oppositional defiant disorder first, so I guess conduct disorder is really best referred to as poorly treated oppositional defiant disorder. Bipolar disorder? I've written about this a little bit. I find that bipolar disorder is mostly a proxy for severity. Um, in, in, in some diagnostic criteria that is being used for pediatric bipolar disorder, I've seen the criteria that the kid has oppositionality beyond that which would be expected with mere oppositional defiant disorder. I have absolutely no idea what that means, but bipolar disorder is a proxy for severity, I suppose. I think that if we find a kid who's got a diagnosis, we are guaranteed to find that he's lacking crucial cognitive skills and has a whole pile of unsolved problems that have accumulated over time and that have gone unsolved. Now the goal of intervention is to solve those problems. I think it's a pity that in many school systems still, a kid needs to have a diagnosis before he can access the services he needs. Um, what a shame that is. I, was, I tell this story sometimes in the public presentations that I do. I was working with a kid once, and I was on the phone with the kid's school system, and the school system told me that they had a great program that they wanted to put the kid into. And I said, great. They said, but we can't put the kid in the program yet. I said, why not? They said, you haven't diagnosed her yet. I said, I can't put her in, you can't put her in the program until I diagnose her? They said, that's right. I said, uh, what diagnosis do you need? They said, you need to say that she has an autism spectrum disorder. Well, she, she did have some autism spectrum-like disorder features. I, quite frankly, didn't think she met diagnostic criteria for anything, really. I'll talk about that in a second. So I said, okay, she has autism spectrum disorder. They said, good, she's in the program. But in many situations, it doesn't play out quite so seamlessly. There are kids who spend a very long time waiting to see somebody who can render a psychiatric diagnosis. What happens in the meantime? And what happens if the person who's supposed to render the diagnosis doesn't render the diagnosis that the school system needed to put the kid in the program that they wanted to put the kid in the, in the first place, a program that would have done the kid the most good? In the commentary that I'm about to post on the Lives in the Balance website, um, I'm talking a little bit about terms that are no longer useful. And I think um, diagnoses have lost their utility as it relates to placing a kid in a special ed program that they need. I think if you figure out what skills a kid is lacking and what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably precipitating the kid's challenging episodes, you'll know whether special ed has something to offer. But if your assessment process is solely aimed at determining whether a kid qualifies for special education, highly unlikely that you'll figure out what skills the kid is lacking and what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably precipitating their challenging episodes. 
and now you won't have the information that you really need to be helpful. There's a lot of kids out there with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges who don't meet diagnostic criteria for anything. Does that mean they don't have any lagging skills or unsolved problems? No, they got lagging skills and unsolved problems. They just don't meet diagnostic criteria for anything. Kids shouldn't need a diagnosis to have a problem. They should just have a, need a problem to have a problem. I've said that many times. And you don't need a mental health degree to solve problems with kids. And you certainly don't need a diagnosis. There are many kids out there who are lacking crucial social skills, very black and white literal thinkers. They get an idea in their head. It would take an earthquake to shake it loose. They're very inflexible who don't meet diagnostic criteria for Asperger's disorder or nonverbal learning disability. And the fact that they don't meet diagnostic criteria for anything sometimes deprives them of the services that could benefit them so greatly. I've got an idea. Let's pull out the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. It's got a list of lagging skills on it, a place for you to write in unsolved problems. Let's figure out what the kid's lagging skills are. Let's figure out what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably precipitating that kid's challenging episodes, and let's get to work. Does it, is it helpful to know that your kid has Asperger's disorder? Uh, maybe, in the ways that I described. But I often find that parents go through two developmental phases when they have a challenging kid. There's the phase of thinking that a diagnosis is actually going to be informative. And there's the phase of recognizing that the diagnosis really wasn't very informative at all as it related to helping them understand why their kid was challenging, lagging skills, get the right lenses on lagging skills, and know what they could be working on with the kid, unsolved problems. So in response to the person who sent the email, yes, every kid with bipolar disorder is lacking crucial cognitive skills. And every kid diagnosed with bipolar disorder has a big old pile of unsolved problems that we could be busy helping them solve collaboratively and proactively. Does bipolar disorder move the process forward? Well, there's another school of thought out there that says you can't really know what medicine to use with a kid unless the kid has a diagnosis. Hmm. Gee, that's interesting because I work with many kids whose primary diagnosis was bipolar disorder who, believe it or not, were on stimulant medication. And I've worked with many kids whose primary diagnosis was ADHD who were on mood stabilizers. It doesn't look to me like the diagnosis is the primary determinant of the medication. It looks to me like a really competent pediatric psychopharmacologist who really gets to know your kid knows what lagging skills might be well addressed by medicine and which ones might not be. That's what you're looking for, but you're not necessarily looking for a diagnosis. Are there lagging skills on the list of lagging skills, on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems that would help you, that, that would be helped by medicine? Yes. Poor impulse control is helped by medicine. 
Hyperactivity is helped by medicine. Inattention is helped by medicine. Sometimes irritability is helped with medicine. Sometimes obsessiveness is helped with medicine. And there are kids who have such a short fuse that no matter how much Plan C you use, you really can't make any headway with Plan B until you've got a kid who can actually sit there and have the conversation with you. So there are things that certainly medicine does well, and I'm not being exhaustive there, but those are the things I see kids medicated for most often where medicine is helpful. There are things medicine can help with, but you don't need a diagnosis for a kid to be medicated. You need somebody who knows what they're doing for a kid to be medicated. So now you've got my strong bias. There are some positives to diagnosing a challenging kid. But I think that the positives are mostly outweighed by the negatives. It takes two to tango. This is not all about the kid. The kid is contributing certain factors to the equation, and so are we. I always feel bad for parents who end up in my office. They've been to five different clinics, some of them throughout North America. And what do they have to show for their travels? Five different diagnoses. Proof that this is still a pretty inexact science. I'm not sure that the goal is to diagnose. Once again, the goal is to figure out what skills the kid is lacking and what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably precipitating the kids' challenging episodes. Our call-in number, once again, I'm finally remembering to give it to you mid-show, 347-994-2981. I just had an interesting discussion today with some very intelligent people. I was in a meeting. Some of them are listening to this program right now and are astounded to hear themselves being described as very intelligent, but that's okay. We'll, we'll try to build up their confidence a little. It's actually a group of uh, business people who were interested in collaborative problem solving, and one of the questions that came up, I thought actually all the questions were quite astute, but one of the questions that came up was, what, 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 when, when Plan B goes awry, what's going awry? And this is a question that I received this week as well from some emailers, so I thought I would talk about that a little bit today, too. When a kid isn't responding well to the empathy step of plan B, why might that be? Why isn't he talking? Why is he just sitting there? Well, you'd want to rule out the obvious. Number one, maybe he doesn't have the communication skills to participate in plan B. You'd want to be on top of that one. Um, I was with a kid recently who didn't have the language skills to participate in Plan B, but those lagging language skills had, had at that point been unrecognized. And what I started doing, what I noticed was that when I asked this kid a question, if the question was too open-ended or required any significant level of deeper processing, he really had to think about it, then I would get no response whatsoever. When I asked him yes or no questions, I got a response. So after a few 
no responses to my initial inquiries using open-ended questions, I said to him, how about I just ask you some yes or no questions? He said, okay. Do you like meatloaf? Yes. Do you like spaghetti? Yes. Good, he's talking. That's good. Um, do you have friends at school? A little bit of a pause. He had to think about that one. It required deeper processing than meatloaf or spaghetti. Yes. Do you have kids who you don't get along quite as well with at school? That required even more deeper processing. Yes. I said, do you mind if I ask you one that's not yes or no? He said, okay. I said, who of your classmates are you having trouble getting along with? By the way, I hope you've noticed something. He's talking. Not talking fluently because my conclusion was he didn't have that skill, but he's talking. He's, the main goal of the empathy step is actually now being realized. We're not there yet, but he's talking. He's giving us information. That's the main goal of the empathy step, to get the kid talking and to gather the information that you're looking for. I said, um, what's the name of one of the kids who you're not getting along with? He gave me a name. I said, what's he doing that's making it hard for you guys to get along? Very long pause. I was actually doubting that I was going to get a response on that one. He said he's calling me names on the playground. The long and short of it is, it seemed pretty obvious to me that with this kid, yes or no, he could do questions that didn't require a significant amount of deep processing, he could do. Any question that required a deeper level of processing, he stopped talking. So you definitely want to rule out. You'd want to consider the possibility that this kid doesn't have the linguistic wherewithal to use words to participate in Plan B. In my experience, there are some kids who are lacking the linguistic wherewithal, but I just gave you an example of being able to get information despite the fact that the kid is lacking the communication skills to participate. But now let's get to some of the more common issues that can arise with Plan B. Maybe you're not really doing Plan B. Maybe you're really doing Plan A. Uh, if all you're really doing is imposing your will, number one, He's going to know that. Plan A is a conversation stopper. It's the way to keep people from talking. It's the way to get kids to stop talking. Truth is, you probably want to reassure the kid that you're not going to tell him what to do, that you're not mad at him, that he's not in trouble. If that's true, well, then you shouldn't be doing Plan A. Another possibility. You waited until the last worst possible moment to do plan B. You're doing emergency plan B. It's the heat of the moment. You're rushed. That's a very tough time to get a kid talking and to have him give you the information that you need to get so that you understand his concern or perspective as well as you possibly can. Hard timing, not conducive to getting a kid talking and giving you information. Sometimes people get a kid talking initially. They'll give you an initial response, but then adults fail to drill. 
fail to drill for information. And they just run with the first thing the kid said. I've noticed that you're having trouble with the writing assignments. What's up? I miss my mom. She's out of town. Ah, you miss your mom. She's out of town. Now, in this case, this would, uh, what you're about to hear is a failure to drill. Not a failure, but not drilling. What we could say at that moment is, help me understand how your mom being out of town is related to you having trouble on writing. And I think we probably would have found out that they weren't related. But instead, the people ran with the first thing the kid said, and the solution was to have the kid write a letter to her mom. But that didn't solve the kid's writing issues because the kid's writing issues weren't related to her mom being out of town. We never found out what was going on with the kid's writing issues. We didn't drill for that information. So sometimes it's a failure to drill that keeps us from getting the information that we're looking for. But one of the things I've been talking about a lot lately is the adult tendency in the empathy step and this is related sometimes to the failure to drill, the adult tendency not to be thinking about how to better clarify the kid's concern or solution, but instead to already be thinking about a solution to the minimal information that we've already gotten from the kid. This is a uniquely adult tendency. Maybe the kid starts talking in the empathy step, but now what we're doing is we're thinking of solutions already. That's not until the third ingredient of plan B, the brainstorming step, but we're already thinking of solutions, and it is very hard to think of solutions. It's very hard to think of what to ask the kids so that you understand the kids' concern or perspective better while you're already thinking of solutions to the problem that isn't well understood yet in the first place. Very hard. So somebody asked me recently, what should I be thinking when I'm in the empathy step? And here's what I think people should be thinking. What do I need to understand better? What don't I understand yet about this kid's concern or perspective on this unsolved problem? And how can I ask about that in a way that would actually get me the information that I badly need? There's ways to ask and there's ways not to ask, but I think that's what you're thinking in the empathy step. What do I need to ask next so that I understand this concern or perspective better than I do now. That is virtually impossible to do if you've already jumped ahead two steps and are already thinking about solutions. Once again, just by way of reminder, we, we did cover this in another program, what you're probably mostly thinking about is who is the kid having the trouble with? When? Over what? Where? Who? What? Where? When is the unsolved problem occurring? Why does the problem come up under some conditions and not others? This is the grist for the drilling for information drill, but it's going to be very hard to think of those things if you're already thinking about solutions. Those are some of the ways in which the empathy step can go away. There's other things that we could be doing in the empathy step that would make it far less likely the kid's going to talk. We could be rolling our eyes. We could be disagreeing with what the kid is saying. I had somebody say to me recently at lunch, I believe this was in uh, San Jose, California. I think it was at lunch. 
somebody said, you know, the hard part about the empathy step for many adults is that it's not about you. It's about the kid. It's about the kid's concerns. It's not about your emotional reaction to the kid's concerns, and that means suspending your emotional response to what the kid is saying. No, he may not be saying it in a way that is music to your ears. And in fact, truth is, once the kid starts telling you what his concern or perspective is, the things you're hearing are things that may be kind of hard to hear. But if you want to get this problem solved, I think we want that information. I thought it was a very interesting line. The empathy step is not about you. The define the problem step is about you. That's where you're getting your concern or perspective on the table. But the empathy step... The kid owns it. I remember well a uh, plan B that I was doing between a kid and uh, his parent. And the kid was saying some things that suggested to the parent that the parent had not been, had not represented uh, a story of a challenging episode in a way that was exactly accurate. <laughs> you can imagine how the kid said that. He said something like, he actually didn't swear and he didn't scream, but he said, I... I Mom, I think that the way you said that is not exactly right. And in a classic case of an adult having difficulty suspending their emotional response to what a kid was saying, the adult was tremendously offended by the kid saying that and accused the kid of calling her a liar. And uh, we weren't doing the empathy step anymore. Number one, the kid was no longer participating. And number two, he was being screamed at. Mm. So there's things you could do during the empathy step, rolling your eyes, disagreeing, being sarcastic, that would also cause a kid to stop talking. Interestingly enough, and this came up in the conversation that I was just having this morning, that this is not just adult-child interactions. This is adult-adult interactions, too. In interactions between parents and schools, teachers and administrators, parents who are co-parenting. The ingredients required for solving a problem collaboratively are exactly the same. Getting the concerns of party number one on the table and drilling for information well enough so that those concerns are truly understood. Getting the concerns of party number two on the table and making sure that those concerns are truly well understood and then doing the very hard work of trying to come up with solutions that are realistic, meaning both parties can actually do what they've agreed to do, and mutually satisfactory, meaning they address the concerns of both parties. What so often goes wrong in interactions between parents and schools? They've never got their concerns on the table. They got their solutions on the table before the concerns of both parties were well understood. And now they're duking it out over solutions, and they really don't even yet know what the concerns they're working on are yet. Whenever I'm asked to enter into a dispute between parents and schools, step number one, let's make sure we have the concerns of both parties on the table. That's what I almost always find is that the solutions of both parties are on the table, but the concerns of both parties 
aren't even well understood yet. Once we start talking about concerns, I find that there's a fair amount of common ground. In other words, it's almost always the case that everybody agrees that the kid isn't doing that well. Everybody agrees that we need to do something different than what we're doing now. But we haven't yet, first of all, we may not even have that consensus, but we haven't gotten to the finer grained level of analysis of really figuring out why the kid isn't doing well now. Once you figure that out, sometimes the solution is self-evident. But if you never figure that out, now we're just doing what I would call shot-in-the-dark solutions and usually disagreeing with each other about what would work. What would work for what? We don't understand what's really getting in the way yet. Let's take a step back. Let's really figure out what's getting in the kid's way. Then let's start thinking about what would address what's really getting in his way. The One of the most interesting disputes that occur between schools and parents way before the difficulties of the kid are well understood are does he need a 504 or an IEP? I've always found those discussions to be fascinating. Um, lots of people feel like they're in much better shape with an IEP. Um, I think that... Uh, the 504 versus IEP issue is often secondary to what's really getting in the kid's way, what's our plan for addressing what's getting in his way, and then does he need a 504 or an IEP? Once again, self-evident, but in many cases, the discussion starts with parents saying we want an IEP and schools saying, no, we'll give you 504. And boy, we just skip past the empathy step and we just skip past the define the problem step and now we're just once again duking it out over solutions. You don't want to do that in adult-adult interactions. You don't want to do that in interactions between parents and schools. You don't want to jump to solutions before the concerns of both parties have been identified in your interactions with a challenging kid. These are some of the ways in which Plan B can go awry. These are really some of the most common ways. Let me give you one more. As you know, the empathy stop step starts with the words, I've noticed that. And then what you're doing is you're dropping an unsolved problem into the sentence and finishing this initial part of the empathy step with an inquiry like, what's up? If the unsolved problem that you're dropping into the sentence is too vague, then the empathy step isn't going to make it very far. I've talked about this in a prior program. If the empathy step is too vague, then, then if the observation is too vague, then the empathy step isn't going to go very far. I've noticed that we've been fighting a lot lately. What's up? Too vague. You're going to get a shrug or I don't know or silence. What you want to add into that is the who, what, where, when. You want to get really specific so that the kid can actually sink his teeth into what you're asking. 
uh, I've noticed we've been arguing a lot lately about how much time you're spending in front of the TV. What's up? Now that's a much more specific unsolved problem. You got a shrug in response to the vague unsolved problem. And if the kid has the linguistic wherewithal and you're doing proactive plan B, you're probably now getting information because the concern, the unsolved problem was specific enough for the kid to actually sink his teeth into it. Another vague one. I've noticed you haven't, school's not been going so well lately. What's up? Too vague. You want to be more specific about what you've heard isn't going on so well at school so that the kid can actually sink his teeth into it. You want to try to stay away from theories in the empathy step. Judgments. I've noticed that you haven't been too happy about going to school lately. Um, and I think it's because I've been out of town a lot. Well, now, we adults are famous for that. We are famous for preconceiving what's really getting in the kid's way. But if you throw your preconception into the empathy step, then you've made it much harder for the kid to give you the information that you're looking for. Those are some of the ways in which the empathy step can go awry. I think we may have a caller, um, in fact, a few callers, but um, I'm not sure because, nope, the callers just <laughs> hung up. Uh, if you do call in, you, there's some mechanism by which you raise your hand, and then I know that you are ready for me to uh, put you on the air. Um, once again, that call-in number, 347-994-2981. Looks like we are... Uh, not going to have any callers today. If you're listening to the archive, once again, email me with any questions you might have by going to the Lives in the Balance website, clicking on the contact form. It comes straight to me, and not only will you get a personal answer from me, um, I may end up answering your question uh, in the program. Of course, I won't use any identifying information, so you don't need to worry about that. Um, This collaborative problem-solving stuff is challenging, but I find that it's a whole lot more productive than using Plan A. Just had a long discussion about how popular Plan A can be, but if you're using Plan A, then you're teaching kids quite the lesson on how solving problems is best accomplished through imposition of adult will. I'm not sure that's what we want to be teaching. In fact, I'm quite certain that's not what we want to be teaching. Plus, in challenging kids, plan A causes challenging behavior. They don't have the skills to deal well with plan A. Flexibility, adaptability, frustration, tolerance, problem solving. Plan A, of course, is when you impose your will to try to solve a problem. Plan C, of course, is when you're just dropping the problem completely, at least for now. That's not going to solve the problem either. It's, it's useful as a mechanism for prioritizing. There's just some problems you've decided are not the big fish that you want to fry right now, but you'll get back to them later, but you're not solving any problems that way. No, the, the one to get good at is plan B. And you've heard a little bit today about 
some of the problems people run into when they're doing Plan B, as well as some of the downside of using diagnoses to try to characterize kids who aren't doing well. I think we'll call it a day on that note for the day. Thanks for joining in to today's program. Um, if you're interested in listening to Alfie Cohn, uh, he's going to be on my program for educators next week. That uh, is on at 3.30 p.m. live Eastern Time on Mondays. Alfie Cohn, of course, the author of um, The Homework Myth, uh, some other books for parents, mostly known for his uh, books that he's written for educators. Maybe I'll try to get Alfie to come on the parents program uh, at some point along the way as well. He's a fascinating guy, always with uh, insightful and sometimes controversial uh, things to say. Um, he'll be on the educator program next week uh, as a special guest. Uh, and we'll be talking about his work in education settings, especially his books like Punished by Rewards and Beyond Discipline. But let's call it a day today. I hope you'll join in next week, and I hope you found today's program to be useful. Talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.